Hello, Magic is Real listeners. I'm Shannon Torrance. I'm your host. And today I bring to you an interview with Leslie Lupo. Leslie is an intuitive therapist and healer. Leslie had a near-death experience when she was trampled by a stampede of horses. After a long recovery, she wrote a book called Remember Every Breath is Precious. I loved this interview with Leslie. She's so articulate, has so many great nuggets of wisdom. She's able to describe her near-death experience in such vivid detail. And as a professional therapist, she also has wonderful advice about how to live our best lives in this human form. Thank you so much for watching. We couldn't do this without you. And now here's my interview with Leslie Lupo. Hello, Magic is Real listeners. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Shannon Torrance, and I'm the host of Magic is Real. I'm here today with Leslie Lupo. Leslie is a near-death experiencer. She is an intuitive therapist and healer. She is the author of the book, Remember, Every Breath is Precious. Leslie, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. Um, so first of all, Leslie, I'll start by asking you, we're going to start with today. What are you doing today? What kind of healing modalities do you offer? What services do you offer? Um, tell us about what you're doing with your life um, from a spiritual perspective and in general. Well, um, in my training in college, I was a psychologist. I had a, a BA in developmental psychology. And um, after that, I went on a different tack because I married a man that had a dude ranch with horses and I was Mrs. Tangaverde Guest Ranch. So I was always working with the clients. I'd grown up in the restaurant business in Chicago. So being in the hospitality industry, again, was perfectly natural. Um, but then I had the incident of the near-death experience and it kind of flipped everything. So I went back into trying to find a spiritual path because at the time it happened, I was, you know, borderline atheist, at least an agnostic, had no interest in it, didn't believe in it, nothing other than the material. And I had to redo my whole life and find my light within and kind of build my own spiritual path. Um, at that point, I went back into the healing modality with being able to see the energy fields around people and working in a psychological and spiritual way to integrate the science and the spirit in every single person. Um, and I've been doing that. I've been 25 years at Kenyon Ranch working in their metaphysical department and have countless clients all over the world that I've been able to take exercises from a relationship workshop that I also evolved. A lot of the things that are in my workshop are lessons that I learned on how to detach, for example, from the roles that we play, how not to get caught up, how to include myself in my decisions rather than living selflessly to a fault. And a, a bigger understanding of um, the trajectory that humanity is on for the last several thousand years and really seeing the positive side um, and seeing all the love around. So, so many aspects happened, you know, from this kind of shakeup that I got on reality, you know. So it makes, I think, a really comprehensive healing modality because I can work with each person individually and look at certain things like their past lives or or certain things that factor into today and help them give them the tools to dismantle it you know mm -hmm. it's it's such a rewarding um I love it it's like it's the most healing happy thing when someone writes me a letter and says you know, I fixed it, you know, and it just makes you, it just touches your heart. Yeah, that is such a gift to be able to be of service in that way. Um, mm. I, I just think that's beautiful. And I also love that you said that you were sort of leaning atheist. I think one of the <laughs> things that I aim to do with this project is to bring these stories 
to light, bring these stories to people from the perspective of people who are very grounded. And I think it's always, I always trust people more who have a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, you know, when it, it, sometimes it's difficult because a lot of people who have had near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, sometimes can get a little bit, um, they're, they're, they're sort of a different dimension. And so often the language that they use isn't accessible to the layperson. So to the layperson, it might sound woo-woo, crazy, and they're going to turn it off because they're not going to understand it. And they're like, I don't know what this person is talking about. This is crazy. But I think that um, coming from people who, especially people who are very grounded and can say, look, I was just like you. I'm just like anybody else. But I had this mystical magical, true experience, I think it really helps get the message out there to people who may be on the fence about their own beliefs. So I appreciate that. Right. Um, and right. with that in mind, I'd love to go back to uh, tell us about who, what your life was like before your near-death experience, even as far as childhood, if, you, if you're comfortable sharing what your, oh, sure. yeah, what your previous attitudes were towards spirituality and just basically what your life looked like. Okay, so when I was very young, I could see other beings there. I thought they were people until I realized no one else could see them. And that was a little disconcerting as a child. So I learned to keep that to myself because I either got teased or people were frightened by it. And that was fine, you know. But then when I was around seven, in my mind's eye, I was driving with my mother and I saw a car accident happen between two cars, a red and a white one. And my mom assured me that there was no red or white cars around. And after about four more blocks of driving, we witnessed a car accident between a red and a white car. And I, my mom kind of mussed my hair up, you know, because she was surprised, but she never talked about it. I just think she thought I was a fanciful child. And um, it just, I thought on the other hand that I had caused it. So I learned at a very young age to turn off my intuition or that ability that everyone has to sense the magnetic field. Some people just have a little bit more of that sense, just like someone has a better sense of smell or taste. Then I got a little older and I was being raised in a religion that was very specific, like our religion goes to heaven, everyone else doesn't. And when I finally pressed them for where the others go, they said hell. And that horrified me. And I debated all week long with the teacher because I think of new arguments against that theory. And at the end of the week, I declared myself an atheist. I knew the word because I was a little advanced child and to keep me, you know, sane in some of the classes where I knew every, what they were teaching, they put me in the library. Um, and that didn't get me any gold stars, but it kind of set me up to just say, go into science. So when I was in high school, I was all into sciences. I went to college in Albuquerque and I kept bumping into people. A medicine woman here, a high priestess in Wicca there, a, a medicine man or a shaman. And they kept saying to me, why do you have your light turned off? And they began to teach me how to access my intuition again and how to have that inner connection to the divine be open. Um, then I had a tragedy, a personal tragedy. My fiance died two months before the wedding and I shut it off. I just went, no. I should have known it's all just, you know, placebo effect. It's what you expect, you know, and I dismissed it and went back into science and got my degree in developmental psychology. I was a materialist in science. And then I had the near-death experience and it like rocked my world. It, it's the analogy I use is if your pet came up to you and you were petting them, and they looked at something on the ceiling and they ran up the wall and chased the little butterfly or moth and then came back down again, it would rock your world and your sense of reality to a way that would be scary. I mean, we see it all the time in movies, but we know that it's not real. 
Well, I had to go through the reconstruction of Leslie from a borderline atheist position to recognizing that, that I couldn't go back to the life I had. And my support group and everyone was very much in the science materialist, scientific mindset. And here I am. And again, I'm faced with ridicule and fear and threats of putting, being put into a psychiatric unit and had to reconstruct my life from my reality. Now, I still was very objective. I know a lot of people are skeptical and I prefer to be skeptical than gullible, but I actually like objectivity because skepticism sometimes looks for flaws where there are none. And it's nice to be able to be objective. And it was just very tumultuous, you know, the first few years after the head injury, struggling to get my memory back, struggling to reestablish who I was. And it was, it was a mess for a while, <laughs> for a few years. It was, it was difficult. Wow, thank you so much for that. I, there's so many things that struck me about what you said. One is that I love what you said about um, skepticism versus objectivity. That's a really important one. I think that's what I mean when I said earlier that uh, I, I think it's important to have healthy skepticism, but I think you're right. It's not yeah. skepticism. It's uh, the, the ability to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to see both sides of the, I'm going to, uh, to see both sides of things and I can still maintain objectivity and not be swept away with one idea or another. Um, the second thing, um, it, it, it amazes me that so many people that have had near-death experiences already were given this little glimpse and it was like God or the universe, whatever you call it, was saying, I'm showing you a glimpse and now I'm going to, you're going to need a real, as you, as you and some others have said, it's sort of like a makeover or a, a total reconstruction of yourself, which I think is really interesting. Also how wise you were as a child, um, because that was always an issue for me is that uh, certain religions will say, well, well, for instance, traditional Christianity will say, well, if you don't accept um, Jesus Christ, you're, you won't be saved. And my question was always, well, what about the people in Africa who have a different religion and they're, they don't, they're not aware so is it using India? My first question was that when they said that was what about the people that died before Jesus? I was horrified that there would be a system that was so unfair. And I said, what about someone in India right now that's living in the mountains has never heard and they're good people. Are you telling me they're going to hell? Because they wouldn't say where they were going. They just said, this is the only way to get into heaven is to be in our religion. And so I raised my hand and said, where does everyone else go? And it took her a couple of times of me prodding for her to say hell. And everyone in the class went, oh, because that's harsh, you know. We've been told about hell and immortal, you know, and mortal sins and all that. And I just thought that was it. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't be, believe it. I just, in my heart, I just thought then there's no God because that is so wrong to exclude someone that's never even been given a chance, you know? Yeah. If they had said to me, this way our religion gets to heaven, I would have batted an eye. But when they said, this is the only way to get to heaven, I just went, I can't do it. That's so wise and so free thinking for such a small person to have that, that awareness because that's not what God is. You know, God no. is love. God wouldn't punish no. somebody for not being aware of him and, or, you know, you could call it him, you can call it source, whatever. But I, I believe that God is love and God is right. the source of all of us. The most intense level of love and adoration. You know, I was taught that we adore God. And if we're really, really lucky, God will acknowledge us and you know and some of the prayers I was taught was like Lord make me worthy and of your love you know I just I just it's appalling to think that people can think so little of themselves 
and that your religion is teaching you that and that you are just so unworthy of, of love. And when I was upstairs, when I saw the source or the divine or whatever it is, and I felt adored, I felt adored every particle. And I also felt that God knew exactly who I was head to toe with all my little quirks and my failings and adored me. And it, it was such an overpowering realization that I'm adorable as I am. It's, it was amazing. I am glad to hear that. That is what I believe. So take us to the day when you had a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it started out like any other. Uh, my ex-husband owns a dude ranch and I was working there and um, I had grown up in the hospitality industry. So I was, I had a lot of fun. I love horses. And it was a seven day a week job from breakfast to dinner. And I loved that too. We had really lovely clientele that came back the same people year after year. And um, one day we had a cowboy come in and he was a little out of sorts. So we had to send him home. So I jumped in the wrangling department to help out. We're giving classes and, you know, helping saddle and get people going. And at the very end, I was jumped in, I was helping unsaddle. And we had the slow walking rides come in first and we were unsaddling. And one of the horses got out and ran down to the hay barn with the saddle on. Another horse followed. So I grabbed a couple bridles and I ran down to get them. And um, what happened was they were standing right next to each other, you know, chowing down and, and the hay that had been put out for them. And there was about 80 horses out and they were all standing side by side. And it was a solid wall. And horses are in a herd are lovely beings, but they're not like your buddy. And when you're trying to poke them to get between them and they're eating, they're like, I'll talk to you later, but right now don't disturb me. So I'm trying to wiggle in between these two horses and I couldn't, I only got as far as the stirrups because the two um, saddles were squinched in so tight, I couldn't get between them, I couldn't slide through. So I turned around and I grabbed the back of the saddles and I was going to push myself back like that. And at that second, I, if you had asked me then, it would have been my mind popped out of my body and began to witness it from about 15 feet away. And I was so startled that I was watching myself struggle. I couldn't even say the word what. I, I was just frozen and astonished. And then all of a sudden, one of the horses kind of gave a little snort and everyone bolted. And so, I got caught in and I watched it happen almost like slow motion where because I was turned around when I spun my arm went through the stirrup all the way up to my shoulder and I was struggling and screaming to stay on my feet screaming for help all the cowboys were on the other side of the barn I was screaming for help and struggling not to get caught in this stampede the horse that I was hooked on started kicking at me and slamming me with his head and finally crushed me up against the hay barn, at which point I watched myself just collapse. And then after another step by the horse, I kind of was spun out of, I dropped out of the stirrup. And I watched it all. And the odd thing was I had the most amazing sense of serenity. I could see the panic and the screaming and the fighting for her, you know, I always think of it as her because it wasn't me anymore. Life, she was fighting for her life. And I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel nervous. I didn't feel frightened. I didn't feel any pain. I felt like it was almost like taking off a body girdle that's four sizes too small. I felt a, a strong sense of relief. It was like the circle's complete. 
you know, this is the way you get rid of the body kind of thing. But I wasn't conscious of that. I just felt serenity and this amazing sense of completion. And as I looked at my body, I knew I was dead. I was not unconscious. I was not um, having a dream. I knew that I was dead. And I was amazed at how all of my senses were heightened. My sense of smell, my sense of hearing. I could see, you know, in my peripheral vision had expanded to almost, you know, completely around me. And it was all in perfect focus. It was, um, I felt light. And the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what everyone's so afraid of. I'm still here. I'm still thinking. That's the first thoughts I had. And then I thought, oh, am I a ghost? And I looked down and I'm not. I wasn't see-through like a ghost. I had my clothes on that I was wearing. Only I could see this little kind of blue light around me. And I felt like all my cells had separated and I was just lighter, you know? And then the last two rides came in that we were waiting for to unsaddle. And I was so nostalgic. I thought, oh, I know what they're going to do. They're gonna come through the gate. Then the last guy will get down and he'll go and he'll padlock the gate so that no one steals our horses because, you know, they do that sometimes. And, um, so they came up and saw me and they raced over. And at this point, I'm kind of fading and everything is fading around me. And it was like almost like a lot of whirling going on. And all of a sudden I'm in a forest, a beautiful thick oak forest with ferns and water behind me, a river. And I was astonished because as alert and over alert that I was, um, you know, over sensitive to all my senses, I felt groggy. I felt just like when you first wake up when you have only had a couple hours of sleep. And again, the first thing I did was, okay, so who am I now? And it, my skin looked like I was in college again, you know, like 20s, just, and I had big freckles, which I don't have here. And I was like, okay, what do I look? Okay, I'm a girl, you know? And I looked, I'm wearing a dress. I was wearing a really beautiful, like almost like an ultramarine blue um, dress. And I was so amazed at everything around, the beauty of everything. The colors were so saturated. And it's almost as if everything was lit from within. Um, the, the first thing I noticed was, again, basic psychology, we have that fight or flight reflex within us that's in our biology to keep us safe. I didn't have that. I didn't feel it. And I felt like that was completely gone from my consciousness. And it was only the love part of the human, you know, that humans can have such an amazing level of love. And that's all I had. I had only love. And I felt inundated with this very selfless love that was coming from everything I looked at. I was so delighted to see the colors and the flowers and there were butterflies and little birds. And I was so in awe of everything. And now this is a little hard to explain. First of all, everything is, um, I can't remember the word. It has like an iridescence to it. So all the colors were not only saturated, but they had that kind of little rainbow um, aspect to the color. You see it sometimes in ribbons here. They have a white ribbon and then you have a white ribbon that has like a little rainbow on it, an iridescence. And then when they moved, it wasn't like walking like this, like taking steps. It was, I'd look at this, little river behind me and it would be like I'm automatically there so the moving was in steps more like in like I'm here then I'm halfway there and then I'm there the way I can remember to describe it is it's almost like 
when you see those flip charts and you make them go fast and then you see the movement, it was like that. It was like, I'm here, then I'm here, then I'm there. And that's really hard to get across is the movement. Other thing was whenever I was talking to someone, it would be mostly telepathic. And when I asked a question, it would be that the answer was totally downloaded to my complete comprehension. Yet when I was writing the book, I had to put it in a linear format. And um, that took me quite a long time because you're trying to express things that are so difficult to put into words. You know, the sense of love, the sense of having like every cell in my body be radiating. And then I also had known that, noticed that that little blue light around me was wider, but I could see it almost like streaming off of me. And it was a really beautiful, dark, rich, um, blue kind of indigo color. And then I noticed that to my left, there had been, there was the table with people standing there. So I moved over there and they were all welcoming me back and cheering and you hear all these voices telepathically. And I sat down, I went to a chair. I didn't recognize the symbols on the back, but somehow I knew it was mine. And I was sitting next to a man. And again, I, his name popped in my mind. It was Rao. And the woman that was sitting to my left was Mina. Now, she was the woman that I predominantly saw when I was on Earth. And when I was young, I would see her a lot. In fact, I called her the blue lady because she had a beautiful cobalt dress on. And it's a very intricate little story, but they kind of showed me what happened and I was very groggy. So we would take, you know, they would let me have information then stop. But the gist of it was that um, I had a choice to make that I was, in my contract, I was supposed to die in my early 20s. So when my fiance died, I was supposed to be in the car with him. And it wasn't. I, at the last second, had opted to go back to Chicago and work for the summer to get money for college. Um, and they said, you opted to stay, and that's fine. You're continuing your work, you know, to help. But now you have another choice. You can go back to Earth or you can stay this time, but we want you to have information before you make that choice. So I, I actually, they wanted me to get grounded up there, in which case I walked around a little with Rao. We traveled, that's when I saw the divine. And then I went into a cave that I apparently loved to hang out with in, and um, I saw Jesus there. And then I went to the Hall of Knowledge and I saw Saraswati there. And that's another place, I guess, is my favorite to hang out, which is why I understand as a child, encyclopedias were my favorite books to read. So then I sat down and we went through the options of me staying or going and what my soul group does up there and what I would be continuing and what I would do if I came back to Earth. And then once I decided to come back, because I had two little children, my son was only one and my daughter was three. And it was them that tipped the, the scales because at first I was like, no way, I'm not leaving here at all, you know? And, um, but when we talked about it again and discussed it in a smaller group, I decided that it was, it was fine that I would go. And, when I went in the room, there was these wavy lines on the other wall. And I thought it was just like a water uh, fall kind of coming from ceiling to floor. And it was actually a little room that I went into to be um, kind of coming back to earth. But it felt like I was getting squashed into a sausage casing. It was like all of a sudden limiting. And I gasped. It was the only time that I was really in, in any type of discomfort, 
And Rao stopped the process and he said, you don't have to go back. And I looked at him and I said, I'll go. And he smiled and he leaned forward a little and he said that. He said, remember, every breath is precious. And I finished coming down. Now, the only memory I have of that is I felt like I hit the ground. Now, what was going on at the time was the Wrangler saw my body. Here's the boss's wife face down in the manure and they raced over one of the client, the guests there was a doctor and he started to do CPR on me with another man. And um, the only memory I have, of, and they gave up, they, they did it for a few minutes, like six or seven minutes. And he said, she's gone. One cowboy went to go get a blanket to put over me and another cowboy went to go find Bob. In the meanwhile, what I felt was like, I felt like I hit the ground, but they said I jolted all of a sudden and sat up. And the doctor, now I don't have a memory of this, but the doctor said, everyone was, Leslie, Leslie, are you okay? And the doctor said, everybody be quiet. And he said, what's your name? So I said, well, everyone's calling me Leslie. And then he said, where do you think you are? And he said, Chicago. And he's like, mm, no, how old are you? And I said, 14. And he's like, no. And then by that time, Bob came up and they said, do you know this man? And I said, is he my father? And they're like, no. And then I began to get not feel well and I passed out. And then I was in the hospital for actually a couple of months getting through the healing that went on after that massive brain injury. Wow, Leslie, that's actually one of the most beautiful NDE experience stories I've heard. The way you tell it is is incredible. Uh, and it, that's it's one of those where there's so much in there to unpack. What really strikes me, for one thing, is that I'm in a proof of life after death group on Facebook. And somebody was saying, I'm so afraid of death. I can't stop being afraid of it. And I said to her, that's completely natural. You know, it's what we realize is that it's natural because it's the unknown. We don't know how it's going to happen. We're more afraid of the moments before. And I said, if you could hear how many people I interview that say death was the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me that death isn't, a, is, isn't the scary part. I said, it's the leading up to. And I said, I can't promise you won't feel pain. But what really strikes me is that you and so many others have said your soul left your body before you felt the impact. Absolutely. If someone was there watching me die, they would have said, oh my gosh, she suffered horribly. I didn't feel a thing. I, my soul was watching it. And that's also helpful. I had a lady... I, at the Kenya Ranch, I do lectures on this. And I had a lady come in one time. She had been to my lecture and she came up and she hugged me the following year they came back. And she said her mom had had a stroke four months after she had heard my lecture. And she's the only child with her mother holding her hand. And her mother's had, it took two days to die from this horrible stroke and she'd moan and, and all that. And all of a sudden she remembered and she said to her mom, she said, mom, I know you're not in the body. I know you're dancing around like a, a, a child. And all of a sudden she felt like her hair like that go on the back of her hair, which her mother always did to her. So she looks around and goes, well, there's no air vents up there. And she goes, mom, I think that was you. And she did it again. And she sat there crying, knowing that her mother wasn't suffering. The body was suffering. We're not the body. And all of the fear and pain and fight or flight reflex, all the aggression and jealousy and insecurities is stuck in the body. And when we're out of that body and in heaven, it's only love. It's 100% inundated it's palpable it's like walking through cotton candy it's so intense and it feels perfect it just it feels like you're walking through light and it's inundating you it's just indescribable it's absolutely indescribable but you're right people don't if you have tragedy 
the body is out of it, the soul is out of it, and you don't feel it. That is so comforting to hear. I also remember that you said, I was watching it happen to her. One of my right. last guests said the exact same thing that right. she actually, I think it was more than one of my last guests. They all say that they were watching themselves, but it was her. Um, I know Janet Tarantino said the same thing because you aren't your body. You no. are the consciousness, the, the spirit that inhabits that body. And that to me is what this is all about. And I just got such big chills. This is the message that I, and I know you want to get out there because people yeah. are so fearful of death naturally. What, what is more, I think for me, fear, what I'm more afraid of is losing someone close to me. I have lost my fear of death because of people like you. And that's what I hope to continue to do is to bring hope to people and let them realize that it is sad. It is when it's happening or it's so hard to let go of your earthly attachments while you're here. You can't imagine, how am I going to let go of my earthly attachments? You have, have two children, two little children, and you did come back for them. But in that mm -hmm. moment, it, you actually would have been at peace going because you knew that you weren't losing them. Right. You understood that you're part of them. They are part of you. There's no losing anybody. But to them, right. it would have been a horrible tragedy and something oh. that would have affected them for the rest of their lives. And it's funny you say that because when you're on the other side, I called it upstairs at first when I came back because I still was so against, you know, the upbringing I had. I couldn't use the word heaven. And my, my scientific objective mind was like, okay, what was that all about? Because again, my cat just ran up the wall and ran across the ceiling and came back. And I got to, it, it warped me, my real, sense of reality that strongly. And I knew what it, that it was real, that it was ultra real. I knew it. And so um, it just made um, everything when they were telling me this will be this much work upstairs you're like oh that's like a minute you know and then it was years going through that but that ability to be in the body and when i do the lectures i always draw a little piece of chocolate on one of the boards that i'm working on and say here's a piece of chocolate a little nice truffle that's the immortal soul that's love that's who you are and then i draw little wrapper around it and I say here's the human body this keeps you alive it keeps you from stepping on a rattlesnake or off a cliff it's it's supposed to be there to protect the soul but that's not you so when you have a fear reflex or you get upset or you want to slap someone you just say that's not me because I'm the spirit I'm the immortal soul and when you can really begin to work that into your consciousness, it makes it so different. And, and the death and dying, I had a five and a half foot rattlesnake on my porch. And I see, as I'm running to my door, I hear this helicopter sounding rattle and I look over and there's this huge rattlesnake kind of benched out under one of uh, my chair out there in the shade. And I called the rattlesnake man and I was shaking. I mean, I jumped like a can. You know, you're not supposed to move, but boy, I couldn't oh, yeah. stop my body back. And I called the man, the rescue man who comes and he doesn't kill them. And he caught it. He told me it was the largest one he'd ever caught. And I was still shaking. So later that night, I went on a couple of the Facebook near-death experience groups. And I said, why was I shaking? I'm not afraid of death. And Bill Guggenheim chimed in. And he says, Leslie, you were not afraid of death or you were afraid of being bitten by a rattlesnake and puffing a pumpkin, you know? And so he's right about that. Um, it's not so much because you know that there's something on the other side. You know your loved ones are there on the other side. You know you'll be reunited with many people. And if you know that, and, you know, but our biology wants to keep us here. And that's a good thing because we have the opportunity for soul growth. We can learn and grow until we die. We can better ourselves constantly. Um, so that's, that's a good thing. But it's nice to know that other people said her 
when they were witnessing what was going on. They did. They felt that um, disassociation from the body, which mm. I find very comforting. And I think it's hard for us to imagine not wanting to be attached to our body. This is ours. This is me. This is yeah. who I am. And and it's our ego. And and that's perfectly natural. That's our survival instinct. It's true. Yes. I, I told that woman in our group um, about the one who's afraid of death. I said, it's actually, you're not afraid of the death. You're afraid of the suffering that comes before the death. And of course, I can't promise that that won't be difficult. You know, if I, you can't say how it will happen. But I said, the one thing I can say is that if it's something quick, your your soul will leave your body and you won't have to be there for it. And that's something I know because I've heard it from every single person who's died. Um, and I've heard mm -hmm. it from, from excellent, excellent mediums who I know to be very legitimate, who've said, you know, your loved one, not to me, but to others that, you know, I've heard your loved one was in a terrible crash or, you know, they were, and they were, you know, maybe it was something horrible that happened to their body, but they didn't feel that all they felt was just yes. some impact. My friend Felice, who I interviewed was hit by a truck. You would think, oh. oh my God, you're like, oh, how painful. She's like, all I knew was there was just a feeling of an impact. Like she felt some kind of a jolt and she was out and right that makes it feel less scary. That makes it, everything well, feel a lot less scary. Yeah, it was a few seconds before the stampede started. I was pulled out of my body because it didn't, nothing popped me out, but it's almost like my guardian angel just pulled me out and said, oh, you don't want to be here for this. But it was the shift of awareness for someone who didn't believe in it to serenity with this, the peacefulness that I witnessed. I wasn't scared. I wasn't, oh no, is she going to make it? Oh no, I don't want to go. None of that. I just witnessed it in this beautiful state of acceptance that it was like, that's the end of a circle. That's the end of a cycle. It's like releasing something, you know, that was actually impressing me. And now I could, you know, be, I could be who I really was. It was amazing. That is amazing. Now, how soon after this happened, and I know you were in the long recovery, did you, did you start to notice that your abilities were coming back or did you, or did you purposely seek out ways to reconnect with the spiritual side? You're funny when you say purposely, I didn't purposely do anything. First of all, I had really bad amnesia. And the funny thing was, when I first came to and was talking to people, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was. People would tell me, but it wouldn't register. So I not, you know, I had, um, you know, amnesia and I, I wasn't picking anything up. And then after a week or two, I began to remember certain facts, but it would be like someone telling me who I was. It wasn't me accessing the memories because the head injury was like the whole left side of my brain was, was in a subdural hematoma. I had bubbles and it bled into the right side. So it went all the way down past the brain stem. This is what doctors freak out with when they see my CAT scans is they're like, this is impossible. In fact, when they first looked at my CAT scan, the doctor told Bob to go home and prepare the family that I wasn't gonna make it through the night will make her comfortable. But then I did make it through the night. And then I made it through four grand mal seizures, which intensified the injury. And they still came back. So just getting back on my feet took a couple of months. And then I went into a therapy to try to get the brain cognition put together because I'd look at a camel and I couldn't tell what it was. I'd look at an abacus or a trellis and I couldn't remember what it was. My mom came down with a bunch of pictures from my youth and she'd tell me, but it was like so bizarre because it's like I could recite the facts, but I didn't have the memories. And they told me that would take time. So coincidentally, <laughs> at the same time, our vet for 120 horses retired. We get a new vet. Well, she's Mystic Meg and she's very spiritual. And so I'm telling her a little bit about what happened because I got so tired of everyone yelling at me 
and the doctor threatening to institutionalize me and fill me up with so many drugs I wouldn't know if it was day or night that I just shut down again. I didn't talk about it until I met Luann. And then a lady came to give a painting. She had made a beautiful frame out of um, uh, swallow ribs and the girl worked for us. Well, at that point she had left and Dana walks in and she's got this really beautiful and she says, I'm delivering it for so-and-so. And all of a sudden we just start talking and I said, do you like to ride? Because they wouldn't let me ride by myself anymore. So she and I started going riding and here she is, a tarot reader who's, who's again, a medicine woman. She's very profound. And she and I are still close friends all even today. Um, and she was also the one that really helped me point in a direction of meeting this huge spiritual community here in Tucson. Although a few of them I got thrown out of because they didn't believe that I'd had in your death. They said it was, so this was 1988 to 90, 91. Then I'd go to India and I would just sit and veg and just meditate. I really got into that. But it literally took me a few years of rebuilding who I was and what I was. Now in college, I had played with tarot cards, more like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung had talked about them as, um, you know, just like a symbol of their subconscious. It wasn't predicting things. Um, and it was more for inner vision and insight. So I went back to doing that and added some other dimensions to it. Um, but it, it took me years to figure out what my spiritual path was. I had to find that inner connection in my human body that was 110% who I was upstairs. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, it's, it's so interesting. I just think how you started, it just, it's your whole trajectory is so interesting to me, how you started out being given the ability to connect and then you sort of turn it off and then you have this profound near-death experience and then slowly it's just, you keep being pushed back on that path of spirituality, even when people are trying to push you off of it. The universe knows better. Source knows better. Um, yes. there, there are people who are not going to believe it. There are people who are going to make us doubt ourselves. And But you just keep being pushed back in the right direction. So at what point did you either decide or begin to follow the path of being able to serve others with your abilities? I think it was when I left the ranch. Bob and I had had some problems before the accident and they came back again and we decided it wasn't working and I left the ranch. And then I had to figure out what am I going to do? Because for 10 years, my whole life had been Mrs. Tangiverde Guest Ranch. And now I'm on my own with two small children. I mean, part-time, he's a great dad. So he was very much present in their lives. So but what was I going to do for a career? And I first started doing interior design because that's one of the things I had done at the ranch. I'd done all the interior design, the landscape design and all that. And I met a woman at a SCORE luncheon who was an interior designer and she brought me on board um, and helped me get established by myself because I was still a mom for two young children. They were four and six. So I didn't want to work full-time. I wanted to work part-time. When they were with their dad, I would work. And when they were with me, I would have the time off. So I had to be self-employed. And then um, I kept getting back into spirituality. Like I said, I go to Indian meditate. And I get, kept getting called back to the tarot decks. And just the mystical way that the um, the allegorical mind or the parables that come out of every religion that teach us beautiful lessons about life and happiness and using it in that way rather than predicting you know um, like on Thursday you're going to have a car accident don't leave the house you know I mean that that's kind of stuff is in the movies it's not we can't, we're not like the future is not carved into stone and I can see it. It's more like we all have free will, but we've 
our choices have put us in a trajectory. So if I show you the trajectory you're on and give you tools, then you can redo your life. And my gift is simplifying it. It's not too complicated to make these shifts. And that's when I started doing that. At the same time, I was doing the interior design. And then I had one of my clients in LA who came to Canyon Ranch all the time uh, 25 years ago said, you know, the tarot card reader's leaving. And at that time, how could you advertise for a tarot card reader? You wouldn't know who you'd get in. But she went in and she's a big name. So she went in and she said, this woman's amazing. It just like literally across the wash from me. And so I went in, I interviewed and they hired me. And then it began, the more you do it, the more you flow. And then I was teaching workshops there and I was doing lectures on learning to love yourself because that's the key I see is a, they're either selfless to a fault or there's very little self-love. And to me, self-love is rooted in humility. Self-love is not arrogance or um, conceit or vanity or narcissism. That's all a fear-based behavior. Humans all come from love or fear. So we got the chocolate and we have the wrapper. And so recognizing this part of me that wants to you know, get angry, which doesn't help anything, is reacting from fear. What does my love want to do? So those kind of taking a pause and being a lot more self-aware, we can nip so many things in the bud. And then just from that point on, our life just kind of turns into a series of mini miracles because the miracles are all around us. It's just when we're fearful, it's like we're crunched down like this, we can't see it. And I think that I hate the when the people say, oh, you never get a second chance. I think God gives us a gazillion chances. And so just try it again, just try it again. Keep even if you only get a foot this time, try it again, you get another foot. And soon you build up the momentum that carries you through whatever blockade has been put in front of you, many of them by ourselves. That, uh, that was so beautiful. So much good stuff in there. Um, and I, I, I definitely um, can tell that you, you know your stuff. Um, that you have so much to offer to your clients, but also just to the world. Uh, it's just so clear that you have said that you're also well able to articulate and be so eloquent about the messages that you that you've learned. And I, I agree, it's sort of as I'm nearing, you know, closer and closer to 50, I and I'm halfway through my life, I see that that most of my life I was in a fear-based state. All of my yeah. decisions were made out of fear and anxiety. And as I'm releasing that, I'm seeing that things are just flowing so beautifully. Amazing. It's like the, it's, it's like that. Yes. It, it's, it's the less is more thing that is so hard for humans to do. I'm struggling with it in my mediumship, in my learning. My mediumship is, oh, wait, so you mean I actually, actually do nothing and that's how I get results. It's so opposed to the way that our human brain works, which is the harder you work, the better you'll do. The, if you work harder, you'll make more money and you'll be more abundant. And it's all about straining and struggling when really you, you start to learn that, oh my gosh, it's the opposite. Well, the interesting thing is this, we need our logical mind and we need our intuitive mind. We need that fear that keeps us from stepping on a rattlesnake. You know, we need our logic. And think about one thing, we're the only animal on the planet that radically changes what our parents teach us. So here you have a little baby lion being born in Africa. It takes them two to three years to become a skillful hunter and they mimic their mother and that's how they learn. If, or a grizzly bear goes, takes her cubs down to the river and teaches them how to fish for salmon by grabbing them and the baby imprints it, they learn by mimicking. If I was a cave woman and I went down to the river and I'm grabbing the fish, my son would look at me and say, you know, mom, if we take this stick over here 
and we sharpen it, we could poke them and we don't have to get that close. And then his son or daughter will say, but look at these, look at these tree fell over, look at these roots, maybe we could make a net and we could catch them. And every generation builds on the next generation. So we're a really bizarre animal. And so sometimes we do have to do 110% to get to the next level. But for the intuition, it's stilling the mind and just being. Many of my teachers in New Mexico, in fact, all of them, nobody told me anything. Nobody told me this tarot card reader means, this tarot card means this. They said, what does it mean to you? I'm like, I want you to just tell me. And she's like, I can't tell you. It means something to me. It's going to mean something different to you. Everybody's different. And so those were my best teachers. It was almost like the koan, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And our intellectual mind just goes, ah, you know, I don't want to hear. I don't want to think about that. But in reality, it's a really nice way to still the mind. And that's what happened to me in India. I got to really still my mind and hear my intuition and then follow. Um, one of the most potent things I've done, which is again, so simple, is starting a gratitude journal. I just, every day at the end of the day, I write down eight things that I'm grateful for that are different. You can't write the same thing. And the best part of it is you run through the obvious. I have 10 fingers. I have 10 toes. I'm healthy. I have a little farm. I have two beautiful dogs. Um, I grow, have an orchard. And then you I drive on paved roads. You begin to run out of things. So you have to really stretch it. And that's when you really begin to see the minutiae around us, the little tiny things that are miraculous. And when you're opening to that level, then it's like infinity. And it's like the micro and the macro, you know? And it's like when you really go into this tiny, tiny, tiny little things, you're, it almost takes your breath away like, oh my God, I've never, I've taken that for granted. And you begin to really expand and it actually rewires your brain. So you could take Eeyore, who's a born pessimist, and you could put him on a gratitude journal. And within three to four weeks, it literally physically changes the way your brain is wired into where the negative thinking is, uh, it is not the first thing. Or when you do have that fight or flight reflex, you can say, this isn't me, I'm gonna come from love. And a lot of people, when I say that in a lecture or with a client, they say, oh, then I'm gonna be just like the carpet or the mat and people will walk on me. And I say, no, being a doormat is a fear reflex. Love is not fear. Love is strength, but love is strength without abuse. So standing up to someone is different when you're coming from love than when you're coming from fear and you're trying to cripple them. Standing up to someone may be as simple as thank you for sharing your opinion, but at this point, I'm going to go in this direction and treating them respectfully. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. It's all coming together. Leslie, it's yes. one of those things where it's uh, you're hearing a lot of messages and you just keep having those messages reinforced every day. And that's what I feel. Everything you just said, everything for me is coming full circle. And I hope it will for others listening too, because it all starts to come together and it all starts to make sense. And I see that as I put these things into practice, thank you for reminding me to get back to my gratitude journal. Um, oh. <laughs> as I put these things into practice, my life gets easier no matter what's happening. Despite COVID, despite the fact that um, I'm a voice actor and two years ago I developed a, vo a vocal disorder and it's been a really tough journey. And so there have been financial hardships. There have been struggles of what am I going to do next? There, there's been COVID. I have actually never felt more peaceful in my life. I feel like mm -hmm. everything's exactly where it needs to be. There's just, there's a reason for it. And, and it, it's really about just remembering in all things that I am a soul. I'm a human and I need to be here and not lose myself in the spiritual. I, I'm here for a reason. 
I need to be present in this human incarnation and I need to interact with my fellow human beings and uh, work on my character defects and things like that. But at the end of the day, if I keep coming back to, I am a soul, I am a soul, it makes things so much lighter and easier to navigate. So I appreciate your insight so much. And I think that people will get so much out of what you're saying. Um, to, to wrap up, I everything you said is just such a perfect place to end. But is there anything else, if you could sum up everything, what is the most important thing that you want people to know? Well, a couple of things. The first of all, um, I love the philosophy and reincarnation, and that's how I base my belief, whether it's real or not, who knows? There are always more mature people and immature people in the planet, but looking at it from the point of view of reincarnation, if you look at the world, one of the most important things they said to me was that the world is a one-room schoolroom. So let's say you go to a lecture at night, and when we can do that again. It's, there's a hundred people there to hear about the architecture of Nepal. How did they build those big buildings up on top of the, and temples up on the mountains? There's a hundred people in the room. It's gonna be a group of people that on a spiritual and emotional level are from kindergarten to PhD, older souls being masters, college masters, PhD and young souls being pre-baby groups to you know, kindergarten. And you have to recognize that because you could be sitting at a fancy pants dinner talking to a CEO from a Fortune 500 company and he's in second grade or she and the bus person comes over with water and they're a PhD emotionally and spiritually. And so we have to learn to take our time to get know, to know people instead of presupposing that someone who's in a very high level, whether it's business or sports or you know entertainment, is a very old soul. They might be a very young soul. And so understanding that within our family, friends, neighborhoods, everything's a one-room schoolroom. And we just have to be patient with someone like you would not be impatient with a second grader because you can't talk physics with them. And so it's just having that kind of balance. And the other thing, and I think the biggest thing is loving myself. There's a little tiny sentence that says, is this in my highest good too? Because a lot of older souls are selfless to a fault. Anyone that's considered an empath or a highly sensitive person they tend to have no boundaries and they help the people they love. But in psychology, there's um, what we call tough love. And that's not shock jock therapy like some therapists do. It literally is withholding the information and letting them do it themselves. Like anyone who has children knows you don't tie your kids show this every day because they'll never learn to do it themselves. So learning to love yourself and include yourself in your decisions. So if someone is asking you to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable or they're bailing out all the time by you cleaning up their mess, you have to begin to ask yourself, is this in my highest good too? And highest good is not just spiritual. It's, is, is this in my physical highest good? Is this in my intellectual highest good? Is this in my emotional highest good? And is this in my spiritual and financial highest good? You have to make sure you're included in your decisions. And it makes at least half of your difficult decisions snap. Because guess what? If it's not in my highest good to bail someone out emotionally or listen to them go on and on and on and on for the umpteenth time about their alcoholic spouse, it's not in their highest good either because they should be dealing with it. And, you know, there's a beautiful saying, when the student is ready, the master appears. Well, if you've given advice to someone and they're not taking it, either the student is ready, isn't ready, or you're not their teacher or both. So it's a matter of just staying centered in a place where you can give love 
without being decimated by the love you give by including yourself in the decision. Leslie, where were you in my life 15 <laughs> years ago? <laughs> well, thank you for that. That is absolutely beautiful. What you just said took me probably 30 years to get under my belt and I'm just starting to put it into practice now, but I think you are dead on. I've talked in this uh, show before about how I did uh, many, many years of a 12-step program to recover from codependency, lack of self-love, mm. chasing the unavailable, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for yeah. validation outside of myself, counting on other people to make me feel whole. And when they couldn't, I felt suicidal. Everything you just said, I can't wait to go back and edit this because I'm going to be writing down so much of what you said. Um, but I can't wait to share your message. I can't wait to get this all um, edited and out to the world because you are one wise woman. And oh, I appreciate you coming, saying yes to this and showing up and giving your, um, sharing your insight, your energy and your time with me and my audience today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and giving me an opportunity. I think one of my greatest joys is having people light up when they hear something and they go, oh my gosh, you know, I can make my life happier, easier, better. And that's just, it's like, thank you, God. You know, that's always wonderful. I've got the tools. They have to do the work. So it's, it's a co-creation going. Absolutely. On. Now I'm going to put your links underneath the description, but tell us where people can find you, um, where they can buy your book, all of that. Okay, so the book is on Amazon. It's on my webpage. Okay. And there's a link to Amazon. And the book, the webpage is my name, but it has to be spelled correctly. And everyone, Leslie, including autocorrect, which has tried for the last seven years to get me to change my name, but I still won't do it. <laughs> Leslie, L E S L E Y J O A N L U P O.com. And there's a lot of information about the near-death experience. And there's a lot, lot more that we didn't even get a chance to talk about on that. So great. Well, that's good because I want people to read the book. And I want and I uh, encourage people to contact Leslie for um, con um, spiritual therapy if you have openings and that sort of thing. I know that I would be first in line. I think you have so much great insight. So thank you again, Leslie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon.